0: Bible Um, it's on page 867 is our first reading from Ezekiel chapter 36 and it's verses 24 to 28 for I will take you out of the nations I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you. And and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. The next reading is from Acts 2, and that is on page 1093, if you've got a pew Bible. Acts 2, chapter 1. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed they asked, "Are Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites... Residents in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cadavacea, Pontus and Asia, Figeria and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Amen.
1: Thank you so much. That's wonderful. Good morning, the Feast of Pentecost. I hope you have your Bibles with you. I made a great mistake a couple of Sundays ago and uh, took my phone out to read the Bible. And um, while Lucy was praying, I was reading in the Bible and I was wanting to change the version. I had the New American Standard version, I pressed on it and suddenly a voice started to speak. Chapter 66. (laughs) And I tried to stop it, and I couldn't. (laughs) To the great amusement of my children. My parents and phones, eh? So, this is a good thing. It doesn't speak audibly to you, but anyway. The Feast of Pentecost, of course, is not just a a Christian festival. It's a Jewish festival. And, you know, the Jews are celebrating harvest on this day and it is 49 plus one days after Passover. So, a great feast. And the Jews would count each day between Passover and Pentecost, and the counting is intended to remind us of the link between the two feasts. See the Exodus, Passover and the Exodus, And then the Shavuot or Pentecost, which commemorates the giving of the Torah as well. And it somehow echoes the words when Jesus was saying, you know, if the seed doesn't fall into the ground and dies, it doesn't bear any fruit. And then, of course, you know, here we are, Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus uh, died on the cross and was raised again. And then a great harvest begins. So you see our roots as a church deeply embedded in the history of Israel. And this is why these two readings really go together for the Pentecost Sunday. It's the prophecy in 600 or so, or 6th century BC. Uh, 6th century BC, that's about 400 before Christ. I'm, I'm always getting mixed up with, you know. Maths is not my strength, that's why I chose theology. Um, But anyway, you know, sixth century, and and we have the Babylonian Babylonian captivity. The, The Jews are in exile, and you know, what is happening here? Ezekiel receives a word from God, and this word is this. I will show you how holy my great name is. The name on which you brought shame among the nations. And when I reveal my holiness through you before their very eyes, says the sovereign Lord, then the nations will know that I am Lord. God has got a plan with his people to reveal his glory, his opinion, his character. And Paul is picking that verse up in in many ways uh, by saying, you know, that. Christ inside of you is the hope of God's character and glory to be seen and revealed to every person you come into contact with. So again, you see old and new touching each other, and you see the fulfillment going through a people, the people of Israel, the chosen people of God, and then suddenly at Pentecost, it it expands into all the world, and all nations are caught up in this salvation history that God has inaugurated for I will gather you up from all the nations and bring you home again to your land, and then I will sprinkle clean water on you. Cleansing comes before something else, before receiving something new. First the cleansing, then the receiving of the new, and then the ability to walk in a brand new way. This is what the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel talks about when he says, you will no longer worship idols, and I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you, and I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart, and I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey or to resemble me. You see, this is a time, a dispensation, a period of time of surrender where people learn to surrender again. And God cuts right into this time. I'll pick it up in a minute in the New Testament. But he's seeing our dilemma. What is this dilemma? The dilemma, of course, is the brokenness. The disconnection, you know, the creation that went on their own way, as Isaiah 53 puts it. You know, all of us are like sheep, have strayed away, and we have left God's paths to follow our own. We thought, you know, we could handle this world by ourselves. That was a big mistake. Proverbs 14 talks about there is a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in death. There's always a good idea somewhere. And then as we follow through, it's not that easy after all. And we try to be correct, even politically correct, and our language gets more and more complicated. We don't know how to speak to one another, let alone how to listen to one another. And there we are debating and trying to argue one against the other, trying to compete, trying to step on one another, trying to get there before The others beat us to it, all signs of disconnection. Romans 3 picks it up, Paul says no one is righteous, not even one, you find me a good person, man. You know, one of the most terrifying things or terrifying bits of news is, is that God is good and we are not and you might say, well, you know, I'm not that bad. I pay my taxes, and I feed my family, and, you know, I'm an honest person and I even play golf. You know, whatever it is you might think is good in your life. And I must say, yes, you are probably, by human standards, a good person. But you see, our goodness isn't what is asked for. As soon as we disconnect from the one who has created us, we are not in surrender anymore. And we are not resembling the one. Something is being lost here. And Matthew 18, 11 talks about, you know, Jesus came to restore that which was lost. What was lost? It was the image that was lost. And the image of God is something very beautiful in the human soul. It's the connected soul. It is a man in relationship. It's a woman in relationship. It's man and woman in relationship. And you don't need to look very far, that even in your own life or even in the life around you, that there are signs of disconnections everywhere. But you see, that is not the end of the story because God is saying in your disconnectedness, I am going to do something new. I am going to bring you into connection with me again and that will enable you to connect to each other. And that union is, is so beautifully lived out in the Godhead himself. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father, the initiator. The Son who agrees, the Spirit who fulfills. And each pointing to one another. So beautiful, you know, the Father saying, this is my son, go and do as he says. And the son says, I only do what the father says. <laughs> you know? And then the Holy Spirit, I'm gonna to explain to you everything you know, he said. <laughs> so it's like this amazing passing on of information and love and, and communion and engagement between this personhood of God who is love and love is relationship. And God is saying you can only live this in connection. Try and do it on your own, it'll fail. No one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise, not, no one is seeking God. All have turned away, all have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. That's the verdict of Romans three. Oh, come on, useless, really? <laughs> well, it depends how far you realize how disconnection has affected this world and planet and our society and the way we live. If you're so used to disconnection that you still see the signs of hope and connection and glimmer of stuff and say, well, that's good enough for me, then you have to somehow stand before the judge of this world one day who will judge you valuable and say, look, I've made you far better than you think. And when this connection meets Jesus, just about to be stoned, and everybody points at the woman, who's been, by the way, caught in adultery, and they fail to bring her male counterpart with them. You know, if everything points to this disconnection and everybody says, you know, look at this woman. This, she is an example of disconnection and everybody's picking up stones just about ready to throw and Jesus kind of draws into the sand. I'm not sure what he's writing. Maybe he's writing their own sins or I don't know what, you know, but whatever he's writing and he's just looking up and says, well, you know, whoever has no sin, throw the first stone and suddenly their eyes are open to the, to the sadness of their understanding of their own goodness they suddenly realize, oops, I thought I was good. I thought I was a religious person. I thought I went to the synagogue <laughs> I mean, come on, I'm not that bad, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a theologian, I'm a worship leader, you know. But in, in the face of the one that created you, you know, the, the Holy One, how much of the goodness can stand before him? And then you see they all leave, and the woman is left, and Jesus says, nobody, actually, you know, have they all left? (laughs) Where are you accusers? Has nobody condemned you? And then she says, no, no, Lord, nobody's condemned me. They've all left. And then Jesus, the only one who could have picked up a stone because there was no sin in him, says, then I will not condemn you either. Go and sin no more. What is he saying? He's saying... Go and live according to who I made you to be. Go and live in the ability that I am in you. You can do this. He's not saying, go and try harder. Go back home and try and be a good person. No, he's saying, stay connected to me. Stay connected to the truth that I made you to be. Stay connected to who I told you you are. You are a beloved daughter of God. Don't sell yourself short. You can do this. And that is the voice of the Redeemer coming through here. See, God designed us to live in connection with him and with one another. You see it in your soul, the mind, and the initiation that goes in there, the emotion, the agreement, and the will, the fulfillment. But this connection destroys, and Jesus has shown us how to live connected. I'll just read you from Hebrews chapter one, verse three. The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the mighty power Of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. You see, Jesus radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and suddenly he's creating a church for himself that does exactly the same. That is your calling to radiate God's character and express his glory. And this is what Pentecost is all about. So let's go and uh, leave Ezekiel in the sixth century before Christ and move to Acts. So we only, you know, it's only a bit over 2,000 years ago now where we are. But an amazing story happens. You know, what God prophesied so long ago suddenly appears. And it's not disconnected at all. It's embedded in history. And there's this amazing scenery. You know, people are praying, the disciples are together, and they're waiting on God, and suddenly this amazing scenery happens. Fire appears over their heads, and they start speaking in foreign languages, and they're praising God. Danke, Herr, für deine Gnade und Größe und deine Barmherzigkeit. And somebody thought, that was German, that wasn't Hebrew. (laughs) That wasn't even English. You know, how come he's proclaiming God's word and God's glory in another language? It's much easier for me, I must confess. (laughs) But there you go. (laughs) Suddenly there was, some. it wasn't quite a German, but maybe a Greek person. I mean, I'd heard people worshiping God in their own language. Interesting that God immediately sorts out the language of people and makes himself glorified through the various tongues of the nations. What a sign. Would you have chosen that for Pentecost? Would you have caused that chaos and that mighty wind and that you know, suddenly everybody's doing something here? Isn't that a bit inappropriate for a good church service? What about the orderliness of this whole thing? They seem drunk. Would you like to be in a church where the vicar seems drunk and the worship leader is falling about over his cable and you know everybody's shouting around from where they are? What is happening here? Interesting that God in, on the day where he wants to celebrate the connection that has been created through the salvific story that Jesus inaugurated through his death on the cross, what is he wanting to do with this sudden worship in all different languages? I am picking up something here. You see, this festival is all about God's ability, that's what I'm thinking. And it's all about our own disability. And I love this church because we are an inclusive church where we celebrate abilities on all levels. But it's important to realize that every single person here needs to be connected into community. And the community in which Christ presides is the community of ability. And therefore it is not uh, at all something where we can think of ourselves as people who've got it together and therefore we can be free of trying to pretend, which is a lovely thing. So, our language needs sorting out. We need to be able to speak so that others can understand the glory of God. And that language, that needs sorting out is sorted out by the spirit of God himself. He will lay something onto our tongue that encourages someone else who couldn't understand us beforehand. He will put something into us that will reflect the glory of God and show something of who God is in our lives that somebody else couldn't see and understand beforehand. And this is how the body of Christ works. It's you and I coming together and reflecting God's glory and building one another up. And that is why the Holy Spirit isn't poured limitless into each person, but in a limited way into each person. John the Baptist said in John, I think in John chapter 2 or 3, he talks about the fact that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit in a limitless way. The Holy Spirit was resting on Jesus. No limits whatsoever. In the church, however, you see that the Holy Spirit gives his gifts to every single person. Everyone gets gifts, everybody. And together, we're making up that body of Christ that is filled limitless. So together, as we're coming together, the, the church displays the glory of God in a way that cannot be shown by yourself. So there's a good reason for you to come to church. Don't tell me that you can be a Christian just by yourself watching television and YouTube and good sermons here and there. It doesn't work like this. Why? Because you need the brother, the sister, kids around you that reflect the glory of God otherwise you miss it and we miss you it's important to have that connection so in Acts chapter 2 we read how we connect to God we see the importance of the connection we see that the connection happens and we need to be together but how do we do it? Peter picks it up because the people who listen to all of this stuff, they're saying the same thing. Brothers, what should we do? No idea, how how do we go about this? And Peter says very simply, each of you must repent of your sins. Now repent is is a word in, in the Bible, which has something to do with turning around. It's like when you're going down the wrong way, men, you know, you're not thinking, oh, I know I've got this, I don't need to ask anybody for direction. It's you stop the car, wind down the window, and ask the first person, you know, can you help me please? That's repentance, okay? Right there. The quicker you do it, the more fuel you save. <clears throat> and so, it's... It's turning around, it's thinking afresh, it's, it's thinking in new ways. And this is what they're doing here, repenting. And then he says, and then get baptized. So align your thinking with what God thinks, then you get baptized, which means you're entering into the covenant and you're participating in what Jesus has done for you. And then you receive Holy Spirit. And you let yourself be filled every single day. You don't do this only once, but you do it every single day. In Second Corinthians, and I'm finishing with this, with these verses here, I think, anyway. Um, it says in chapter 3 of the Second Corinthians, but whenever someone turns to the Lord, So here we have it again, the repentance, the turning, okay? The veil is taken away, what veil is that? It's the veil that kind of covers people's minds and they do not understand and cannot see the glory, they cannot see the goodness of God and they think they're all right. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away for the Lord is the spirit and wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So suddenly you realize that Pentecost is not just a sort of spiritual booster, a turbocharge for the church, or an extra that a Christian needs to get in order to be really on fire. But Pentecost is really about freedom, about learning to live under the power and provision of God and understanding our limitedness and our need for connection. So all of us who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Here we got it again. What was lost in the garden? It was the image. We didn't resemble God's character anymore. And that broke us. And now Paul is saying, look, now I'm putting it back, You know, Jesus has put it back together again and his spirit is helping you here. He makes us more and more like him. And as we are changed into his glorious image, so there's something happening here as you're being filled with the spirit and as you mingle with the others who are being filled with the spirit, you suddenly enter into the fullness of what God has for his church and things are possible that weren't possible before. And Paul says in chapter four, verse seven, we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. So what does happen now? Is your life suddenly just one smooth plain sailing? Not according to Paul. He's pointing to these clay jars, breakable, fragile people, you know, in circumstances and in life that is hard and difficult and sometimes hard to bear. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. And then he goes into a whole list and he says, you know, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we, do, we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so that the, that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Pentecost is not about becoming superhumans. Pentecost is about connecting to the one that connected with our humanity and became a very small baby. God creator had to be taught to walk, eat, had to be taught to deal with life's circumstances, everything that life was throwing at him. And if you read the gospels, You see the amazing testimony of how Jesus, in a connected state, yet totally human, lived in the power of the Holy Spirit in every circumstance. And that made him stay on the cross and endure the pain and suffering. And not becoming the victim here forever and ever, but saying, I will forgive and I will live differently because I'm connected, you see? I don't need to retaliate. I'm free to love those who hate me. I'm free to give out because I'm not somebody who grabs for life. You see, I, I know there is enough even though I only have five loaves and two fishes. It'll feed us all. Be okay because I'm connected. And suddenly life becomes an adventure. All expressed in the church of Jesus Christ. Amen.